Welcome to Photo Geek Weekly, episode 183, recorded on January 30th of 2024. I'm your host, Don Kamarechka, back again on a weekly basis. See, guys, I told you I could do it. And uh, we're going to have a lot of fun with this episode. We're going to talk about some new camera gear. We're going to talk about copyright uh, and, and a whole bunch of other stuff. Just go through uh, the, the show notes at photogeekweekly.com if you want a bit of a preamble on that. But I've got a really special preamble to talk about with my uh, guest today. Uh, in the co-pilot seat is Joseph Lenashki, a.k.a. Photo Joseph. Joseph, how are you, man? Don, I am very, very well. And what's truly remarkable is that we're actually in the same time zone again. Almost. I'm, I'm one hour later than you. What? Um, oh, dang it. God, I almost, yeah. almost had that right. <laughs> almost, almost. It's four o'clock for you, five o'clock for me uh, when we're getting this recording. And it's so great that uh, it's the first time that we've had a proper conversation since you moved from the US of A to Slovenia. So why don't you just- Oh, except for that one time that you called me on Facebook Messenger just to see if it worked and we ended up chatting for like 20 minutes. Yeah, that was fun too, wasn't it? Yeah, <laughs> I, I may have been drinking at that time, uh, but, but that's fine. Uh, but anyhow, you, you're in Europe, Central Europe. Uh, why the move? Give us the elevator pitch as to how life has uh, changed. And did you have any culture shock along the way? <laughs> well, the gosh, the why is kind of the classic. It's just time for a change. You know, I grew up in Europe. I wanted my kid to have a chance to grow up in Europe. My wife is from here. So we had the legal opportunity, the legal ability to do so without a whole lot of hassle. Although bureaucracy, as you know, is thick in these parts. So it's, it's been a challenge, but culture shock. No, I've been coming here for 15 years since I first met my wife. So uh, pretty much every year, except for through COVID. So I've been here a bunch, love the city that we're in. It's a great place. I got friends here and uh, really just enjoying the lifestyle here. It's definitely a different pace of life than what I was used to back in the US of A. And I appreciate every last moment of it. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, we've been doing a lot of running around since we moved, just um, kind of getting settled, putting down the new roots, because uh, we didn't really sure. bring anything from Canada, um, aside from what we could carry on the plane. I still have stuff wow. in storage. Uh, and every time we go back, I drag out a little bit more. And eventually I might get it all shipped over here in a container or, or something. But, um, you know, it was just a complete restart. And uh, today we had a, a new couch delivered because the former owners of this house left their couch and it was in a sorry state and it took us nearly two and a half years to replace the damn thing. Um, but it's like, okay. That, <laughs> no, that's that, because that, that's it took like, you two and a half years. Like, you ordered it and it took two and a half years to get it, right? <laughs> almost. No, it, it did take three here. months. <laughs> it, 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 was not, it was not a fast process to get that. Uh, but, you know, when we bought a new car, it took 12 months for it to arrive. Uh, wow. Yeah, we got a, a Polo GTI which is a really fun car. They don't have them in North America, but if you could imagine a Golf, but smaller, like a Ford Fiesta style um, type, of, type of car with a two liter turbocharged engine, which is, it's fun. fun. Yeah. You know, so. that's right there talking about cars. That's one of the big differences for us that I'm really enjoying. We live in the city center and so we don't need a car on a daily basis. And of course, public transport is great around here. You've got trains, you've got buses, you've got you know, all kinds of things for getting around. But we may very well not ever buy a car here. There's a car rental service. They call it car sharing service, but it's really it's car rental, but by the minute and kilometer. And it's electric cars. And there's four pickup spots within a few minute walk of my apartment. So when we need a car, we just open an app, go, I'll take that one and get in and drive away. And the overall cost per month is so much less 
than it would cost if we owned a car. It's incredible. I can imagine. Yeah, I, if, I, if that was available to me, I, w- I would take that. Um, but we live in a village and we're 25 minutes away from the city center. And so uh, the personal transportation is unfortunately still a requirement for us. Sure. But hey, uh, we're, we're, we're living the life. I just got some stone delivered, uh, giant stone slabs that I'm going to plant in the ground vertically to make a whole bunch of raised garden beds, use the leftovers to make stone garden paths, get rid of a lawn because I've, I've never liked mowing a lawn. Ever. Um, and we're going to have beautiful gardens. It'll be a macro photographer's paradise. And uh, nice. once that's done, that's the spring project. Uh, I'm going to be spending time outside with the camera the entire time and loving it. Um, but that well, hopefully you'll get to do to some of that photography with a new lens. Exactly. Uh, so there wasn't many announcements out of CES that were interesting. We mentioned that Panasonic had uh, uh, had finally announced the 100 millimeter f2.8 macro lens for the L mount, um, but we couldn't really talk about it too much. And I didn't want to on the last episode because I knew that you were going to be here and you have <laughs> had your lucky little hands on one of these beauties. Um, yeah. It's been a while since Panasonic has announced uh, a like a what I consider a, a core lens because they didn't have a macro lens in the, uh, in the L mount. I mean, Sigma's right. got some, but Panasonic didn't. So um, what's your uh, impression of this particular piece of equipment? Uh, and I'll, I'm just going to start off with it's small. Yeah. Yeah. That being the key part, if I hadn't known what was coming, if I hadn't known already from talking to Panasonic, the size and weight of it, when I opened the box, I would have been convinced that I was shipped the wrong lens. Is every 100 mil macro I've used in the past is nearly double the size and weight, if not actually double the size and weight. So when you open that, you, you grab it, you're like, wait, what? No, this isn't, no, this isn't right. And the funny thing is, when you look at the lens closely, it actually doesn't say macro on it. So you could easily be convinced really? that this is not a macro lens. Yeah, the word macro doesn't appear anywhere on the lens. It's crazy. The only indication on the lens is the closest focusing distance of 0.24 centimeters, but 0.2, 24 centimeters, 0.24, 204, 204 meters. It's 20 centimeters. Give me a break. Uh, <laughs> but that's the only we'll, we'll indicator. We'll forgive you. Um, Thanks, but it, uh, but uh, in addition to the focusing indicator, it probably says like one to one in terms of the, uh, the magnification factor as well. Uh, you know, I don't believe that it does. I don't have it in front of me right really? now, but... Um, it might, it might, but I, I, I need to get myself one of those. Uh, they're still really hard to come by at this point, uh, but it's got to, I, I think that I want to avoid the specialist. Um, I don't want to say uh, specialist in terms of uh, capabilities, but in terms of mount. I don't want to sure. feature a, a Sony E-mount from Sony, a Canon um, uh, RF mount lens uh, that you can't get them on different uh, platforms. But because I shoot, I shoot Panasonic, I want to have that in the rundown for the, the, the redo of my macro photography book, which is underway. And ah, uh, so, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I also have on order, uh, which might be a pick of the week if it turns out really well. I've got a, um, a uh, was it an 85 millimeter tilt shift macro lens from one of the Chinese manufacturers. Uh, tilt shift macro was never a thing when I, I first published the book. It just didn't exist. So this is going to be a fun uh, exploration, and you'll, you'll hear more from me on that. How, how sharp was the, the Panasonic lens, and, and how did it perform for you? Yeah, it's performed great, and it's exceptionally sharp. It's really, really a fantastic lens. The, the size and weight of it, obviously, is a big standout. So as soon as you start working with it, you appreciate that. If you're doing handheld, clearly having the lighter weight is very nice if you're going to be 
crawling around on your hands and knees and holding this camera up. Uh, it's great to have the lower weight on there. It is very fast focusing. I'll pair it with the S5 II or the S52X, and it is lightning quick to focus. It's been super accurate. I've used it for macro and for non-macro, you know, portraits, that sort of thing. It's performed beautifully all across. It really is a great, great lens. I'm actually kind of sad that I have to send mine back. This one they sent me is a on loan from a store in Poland or something like that. I'm not quite sure. I got somehow I slipped through the cracks and didn't get one of the original ones, which is why my video on it is so late. But it is publishing today. I know by the time this podcast is out, my video will be up on it. So viewer listeners can check that out at uh, youtube.com slash photojoseph. That video will be up by then. Well, let's see if I can beat you to it, because this podcast is going to go up right after I'm done recording. So who knows who's going to get up first? But Ooh, uh, go gone. and check out your YouTube channel. Where can people <laughs> find you uh, on YouTube? What is the address? Photo Joseph. So youtube.com slash photo Joseph. Just type photo Joseph into the search bar, any search bar, anywhere you'll find me. Cool. So thank you for your hands-on experience with that lens, Joseph. I know it means a lot to me, hopefully to the listeners as well. Let's get into the stories. Uh, The first one is on copyright again. It's a topic that we constantly revisit, but this one needs to be talked about today um, because there have been some big stories, some big happenings and, uh, and settlements and decisions. So the first part, I, I'm, I'm going to love reading this headline uh, on Petapixel. <laughs> Richard Prince to pay photographers over $650,000 in copyright lawsuits. I'm like, doing a little happy clap here um, because <laughs> for those that don't remember Richard Prince, this is the guy that took people's photographs that were posted on Instagram and basically screen captured them with their name and the number of likes and possibly some comments or additional text and tried to claim that this was a transformative art form and was no in no way infringing on the copyrights of the people uh, that he was... Um, well, I allegedly uh, infringing the rights on. I want to be careful how, no, I, how I frame didn't it. Didn't he then sell these prints for some egregious amount of money, like hundred thousand oh, dollars? For yeah, yeah. How, so how is that? Who, how? How? <laughs> who the hell would buy a printout of an Instagram screenshot for anything more than the paper that it's printed on? Because people don't buy the art they buy the artist and they buy the artist's worth in some cases. So if you could imagine uh, fictional character, John Smith gets asked to, uh, you know, throw ketchup on a canvas and some, some rich billionaire decides that that's worth a million bucks. Sure. And then, then the next week, uh, you know, John Smith is asked to smear mustard on a canvas. And that same person decides, you know what? That's worth $10 million and buys it. Now the value of the artist is $10 million a piece. And that person has two $10 million pieces and donates them to charity and can claim $20 million on charitable tax donations. It's, yeah, um, this is a complete fictional scenario that I have just created. I'm not saying somebody's done exactly that, but I am saying (laughs) that they could. And the value of art, especially when you get into the high prices, might have nothing to do with the art itself and have everything to do with the valuation of that art for less than honest purposes. So that I can uh, certainly understand. 
I, I mean, I do understand that, right? And obviously, value is in the eye of the beer holder. I get that. But to uh, put a value on a printout of a screenshot of someone else's photo, that's what I just don't, I really don't understand how this ever went to court in the first place. It's insane. Well, and let, let's be clear that this was not a court decision. These well, right. were settled. How it, was, how it was a lawsuit, how it became a thing in the first place, just beyond me. Exactly. So, um, so we've got the, the two people here, two separate cases. Um, uh, one, well, they, they've agreed to pay $200,000 to, and the other $450,000. Uh, and uh, $250,000 in uh, other costs. And it's not described in the article exactly what that is. There is very clearly in this article, in quotation, no admission of infringement. And this is often the case when people settle that uh, this is a clause that is included within the settlement paperwork that they are not admitting to any wrongdoing of any kind, um, but the matter is closed once the money changes hands. So this has been going on for a long time, and I'm pretty sure that uh, Richard Prince had done this to more than two people. I don't know if anybody else had brought lawsuits up to him, um, but if you have been in this scenario, this is now public. Um, it doesn't set a legal precedent in the court system, but it might give ammunition to anybody that has been allegedly wronged in the same fashion. So, um, oh, yeah, where's this so, gallery? I should go check it out. See if he's printed out any of mine. I could use a $650,000. <laughs> yeah, I, I wouldn't bother. Um, but yeah, anyhow, so Richard Prince has been taken to task, at least by agreeing to settle some of these lawsuits, which is fantastic. Uh, pour yourself a drink uh, and celebrate this news because it means a lot. But at the same time, there's another uh, another scenario here, another case on Petapixel that goes in the opposite direction in terms of artist rights, I think. Um, and it is Karen Von D beats photographer in copyright lawsuit over Miles Davis tattoo. So last week we talked about a copyright issue with a, um, a photograph of a football player that was then being used and documented being used uh, to create a sculpture it was also used in creating action figures and things like that. Uh, and uh, there is a lawsuit currently uh, underway to that end. They deliberately, they verbally said that they were using the photograph as evidence. Uh, they had a picture of the photograph behind the sculpture in order to match the photograph properly. And, and that is currently in, uh, in, in the courts, I think. Uh, at least it's been filed. Which brings a very strong parallel to this one, where um, celebrity tattoo artist Carrot Von D uh, scored a resounding victory. I wouldn't be so chipper about it um, in the photography infringement uh, trial over her unlicensed use of a photograph of Miles Davis for a tattoo inked on a client. The beginning of this article with Petapixel, you see the photograph of Miles Davis printed out behind the tattoo artist who was very clearly using it as visual reference material to make, one can assume, an exact copy. The biggest issue with this case is that it went to a jury. How do you feel about that, Joseph? <laughs> um, that seems uh, silly, seems to be a, a word to use. I mean, if you're sculpting a sculpture or you're doing a tattoo and you're using photos as reference art, so you know what that 
person you're doing a tattoo or a sculpture of looks like. Uh, yeah, that seems like how you do things. Now, to be fair and to be clear, this tattoo is very much a copy of the photo. It very much looks like the photo. Clearly, that was the intention. The subject brought in, the person getting the tattoo brought that in and said, give me a tattoo of this. But that's not art for sale. It's it's printed on your body. This is not going anywhere else. So I have a real hard time understanding how Jeff Sedlick, the photographer here, who I actually know, so I'm, I do know that he makes a good portion of his living doing copyright, um, uh, chasing down copyright infringement. But this seems, this seems unfortunate. It does. It does. And, and I think that uh, I don't think this should have gone to a jury because juries are um, just average people. And that's great when you're trying to figure out the morality uh, of, of certain crimes. And, and I think a jury is incredibly valuable for that. But this has everything to do with the uh, legal definitions of copyright, literally the right to copy. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's tricky because is there, is there skill involved in me taking a picture and putting it into a Xerox machine and making a bunch of copies and, I don't know, stapling that to a t-shirt and saying, hey, you know what, look at my new t-shirt, whatever that happens to be. Um, no. And so thereby, that's an infringement of the, the right to copy that particular piece, whoever owns that right. In this case... Um, and potentially in the case with the, uh, the sculpture of, uh, of the football player, there is skill involved in the reproduction process. And I think that does have to be factored into this. You know, there's no skill in copying a DVD, right? And that's clearly copyright infringement. But if you were to try to painstakingly recreate every scene in a movie uh, on your <laughs> own, uh, frame by frame, with Lego minifigures or something. I don't know. Uh, people have done <laughs> such things. I don't know if that would constitute the infringement of the original copyright. This is kind of in the valley between those two, where um, it's not uh, parody or satire. It is a copy of the original in as exacting a quality as is possible. Now, one can argue that the photograph of Miles Davis has a black background. And the tattoo artist is not making the entire, there's not making like a big black rectangle uh, on this person's arm as a part of the tattoo. And so that could lead to some level of interpretation, skill being used, and there could be some other modifications being used. Simply using reference material uh, does not directly mean the infringement of one's copyrights. But this one kind of rides the line. And I wish a judge had decided on this one rather than a jury. I wish that Jeff would have just talked to the guys and said, hey, this is, uh, this is pretty cool. Good job. Let me get a picture of you with my picture and your tattoo and uh, put it on Instagram and call it a day. It just well, it doesn't well, seem very trivial. It really does. It, it, it's weird because I, I do a lot of copyright uh, you know, protection work myself. Uh, people sure. use my work without permission uh, for commercial purposes. I don't think I've, I'd ever go after anybody for a tattoo, but that scenario hasn't presented itself to me yet. Uh, so who knows? The, the idea of infringing on copyright is I've had people that uh, have taken my work and have pretended it's their own. And uh, right. that I don't agree with. Uh, I've had people sure. that take it and publish it without attribution, which is also a thing that I'm not 
uh, a fan. I like send you know if I can send a lawyer after people, I will. But um, for infringing companies in I don't know Nepal, anywhere in, in in Asia, basically, it's almost impossible to get a lawyer that is going to go after it, and thereby uh, usually a takedown notice is what's being sent. Uh, and yeah, you might claim, oh, so you've given me great exposure, but yeah, you're the one making all the ad revenue by publishing my work. And that's an entirely different oh, yeah. scenario. It's, it's never about exposure. Kids. Yeah, exactly. Um, I did no, have it's never a, about a exposure. And I, I, you know, if, if this person, this tattoo artist was lining people up out the door, hundred bucks a pop, walk in, get the same tattoo, maybe that would be something. This is a yeah. one-off. And so it's different. She wasn't paid for it. So there again, it's also different. Oh, yes. Yes. That's important. I think that is very important. And um, yeah, I feel like it's just that is that to me is fair use. If it was my uh, photograph on tattooed on someone, I'd be like, that's cool. Right. The, if it was my photograph tattooed on a thousand people, well, then I might say, you know, that's OK. Now we're now we're doing something. And maybe that's the problem. Right. Maybe that is the problem. You can't let one if you're not going to let a thousand but there's there's humanity here, man. Well, they could have asked him, right? Uh, they could have asked him if they if they could use the photo and pay. Like if it's a celebrity tattoo artist, uh, you know, what would the uh, the nominal fee for making a tattoo copy sure. of the photograph be? Could come up with a number, and if they say uh, no, I don't want to pay that, and uh, then okay, well then use a different photograph of Miles Davis. Uh, you know, I'm sure he's been photographed more than once. Probably, <laughs> probably. <laughs> It's a great photo. It is. Uh, yeah. Compliments to the photographer. And uh, I, I don't disagree with his pursuit on, on this, although uh, I, it, it's a tricky one, uh, as we've discussed. But let's move on to the next story here and uh, talk more about gear. And gear is always a fun thing to talk about, especially gear that I'll never own because it's too expensive <laughs> uh, or it just doesn't fit the mantra that I have. You know, I, talked in the past i've been doing some uh macro work with my iphone lately uh because there's a, a an approachable audience to that kind of work but mm -hmm. uh dji which is the parent company of hasselblad uh has just announced the hasselblad cfv 100c and it delivers modern medium format with classic style they say uh their marketing people need to come up with some jazzier stuff um <laughs> have you ever shot with a medium format camera joseph film yeah, back in the day, I've my father used to have a Mamiya six four five, and I used that a fair amount. Uh, I've shot with Hasselblad, never owned one, and I've never shot. Actually, I take that back. I have shot medium format digital, the Leica S S one. I think that's right. The DSLR style format camera, but it is medium format. Uh, that was that was very nice. But yeah, there's something special about Hasselblad, and this camera looks really nice. It does, just the edges, just the silver details on the, uh, you know, it, it, it feels like it's one of those cameras from like the 1940s that's made of kangaroo leather, although I'm sure they probably do much more eco-sustainable uh, material sourcing <laughs> these days. Now, I actually have a, a medium format camera. Um, in my uh, my little drawer here that is made with kangaroo leather from uh, Roline. <laughs> and this is a stereoscopic 3D medium format camera at that. Uh -huh. um, but that is the extent of my, uh, I guess, enjoyment of, of the format. But that's not mm. to say that things aren't currently evolving. You know, 100 megapixels is the current uh, kind of de facto standard. 
with these uh, these cameras and uh, an ISO range from 64 all the way up to 25,600. It doesn't really compete with the maximum ISO ranges of full frame sure. and micro four thirds cameras, but that's not what these cameras are designed. It's not their environment. You're going to be shooting it at the lowest settings for the absolute highest quality, which is why you bought the camera to begin with, which is also why the cameras shoot 16 bit raw. And that puts me on my soapbox because, <laughs> because medium format digital cameras have been shooting 16-bit RAW format for decades. I mean, uh, Leaf, I think, was bought by Phase 1, and the old Leaf backs were all 16-bit RAW formats. It's not that there's a technical limitation that hasn't been overcome by Sony, Canon, Nikon, Panasonic, etc. Um, do you have any technical reason why all the cameras that I know, love, and use today are only able to shoot 14-bit at best? I don't know. I really don't. I wish I had an answer for you. But yeah, it is. Uh, that is a little annoying. It is, especially because I know it can be done and I know it was able to be done uh, in, I don't know, five, six generations of hardware prior to this. They don't update these medium format cameras every year. But I'm sure if I look back far enough, 16 bit has been around since well before my child was born. And <laughs> and so I, I feel I feel like that that's a. I don't know if you could have a flagship camera, you know, the, the next flagship from uh, Sony or Panasonic or anybody really uh, give me 16 bit as an option, you know, put that, sure. uh, put that as yeah, it, it slow my frame rate down. I don't care for a lot of the work that I do. I'm not going to be shooting at that maximum frame rate anyhow, but let me shoot at that base ISO at 16 bit and be able to have that extension of potential extension of dynamic range. Maybe that's why they don't do this because it really doesn't make a functional difference at the end of the day. But unless I can do some A-B testing, I can't be sure of that. Um, well, it sounds like you need to get many, your hands on a Hasselblad. I do. Uh, Hasselblad, uh, DJI, if you're listening, um, I can send you my address. So aside <laughs> from all of the uh, marketing mumbo jumbo uh, and stuff within this, would you pay $8,200 for a camera yes okay <laughs> <laughs> is there is there a follow-up question there yeah it's like i don't do the type of work now that would benefit from this right i'm not doing say fashion photography billboards being printed huge uh massive retouching that sort of thing that's just that's not my my bag but there is something really awesome and beautiful about that camera. And if I had the money to blow on it, sure, I think it would be a beautiful camera to carry around uh, to do some photography with. You know, it's one of those things where the format of it, the, sty the style of it, your, your photography becomes more intentional. It's not a point and shoot. You don't just whip out your iPhone and snap, push a button, right? It's like you take a little time, you, even though it has autofocus. Uh, you still, you're taking a bit more time. It's more intentional photography. And I think that's a beautiful thing. Well, and uh, let's uh, keep in mind that uh, this camera has a very large touchscreen on the back that can swivel out uh, just in sort of one axis, I believe. I, I don't think like it's a full, you know, three-dimensional rotational type of, uh, type of screen. But I'm not seeing a lot of buttons and uh, and ergonomic features on a camera like this. The same thing with my uh, my my medium format uh, Rolidoscope here. Uh, it's it's well, it's a camera from 1927. I wouldn't expect it to have a lot of bells and whistles on it. Um, <laughs> but but the idea is 
is simplicity in device uh, changes the entire process of approaching the art form. And right. I'm for certain subjects, I'm all for that. But I like to have the muscle memory of what finger presses on what button and dial on the front back and you know, custom functions set to do all of these different doodads and gadgets. And I think that a camera of this type of simple design relying quite heavily on the touchscreen would be a deterring factor, no matter how beautiful it is to me. I don't know how much you need to get into the menus on it. It's, you take the picture. It's not like you're, are you really manipulating the, I don't know, the curve? Are you choosing different camera color profiles? Um, are you- Why not? You- <laughs> Things. I'm used to doing these things. I guess it's things because, like your you know, ISO and your shutter speed. I'm sure those are easily accessible. Right. Uh, well, I, what, what's I, neat I about this camera too, and I hope that this is something that more manufacturers put all across the line, is it can shoot 10-bit, I don't even know how to pronounce it, H-E-I-F, HEIF files. Right. I don't know if we've agreed on calling them HEIF files, but... Um, yeah, uh, like go away Jeff. with JPEGs. JPEGs don't, they, they don't need to exist anymore. Now, uh, 10 True. bit is so much more useful. As we're talking about bit depth, you know, adding one bit from eight to nine doubles the information. Adding another one then quadruples it from eight to 10. It's a very, very helpful thing. And I'm so glad that my phones have been doing that for a long time, even though they can also shoot raw in, in a sense. But I won't buy it. Um, only because I'm invested heavily in other areas. And, uh, and so, yeah. Is there a macro lens available or do you have to go with bellows to do macro? I'm sure if you go back in time far enough, because it's compatible with a lot of lenses, um, that uh, there's going to be some macro equipment available. High magnification macro is doubtful unless you're doing something, uh, I don't know, sort of DIY to connect various people. Uh, bits and pieces together but i do that often with microscope objectives mounting them to my full frame sure. cameras and i'm currently testing actually laowa has a uh is it arugan uh got the whole case of them right here 10 times mm. to 50 times microscope objectives um that come kind of pre-connected that you just have to plug into your camera and i'm comparing those oh, cool. to michitoyo microscope objectives uh the long and short of it is the microscope objectives are better um, but I have to find mm. enough examples on both sides of it to do a proper uh, general comparison. So anyhow, I digress. Um, any further thoughts on Hasselblad before we move on to a very concerning topic? I don't think so. Just, uh, hey, if they're listening, I'll take one. That's a beautiful piece of gear. <laughs> Absolutely. And actually, before we go on to the concerning topics, we are at the halfway point in terms of the stories. So I want uh, you, Joseph, to give a plug about where people can find you, the kind of stuff that you're doing these days, uh, any places where you want people to go to, to check out, where are you found? Yeah, well, number one is going to be YouTube. So again, photo Joseph on YouTube and social network wise, I'm most active on Twitter slash X, whatever we're calling it. I, uh, I'm one of those people who actually uh, are, are enjoying it over there. And I don't get all the troll stuff that other people complain about. So I like it. There's good conversations happening on Twitter. I still call it Twitter. Um, and it's, it's actually a good uh, That's source. probably the worst decision, calling it X. It's just, come on, just yeah. stick with Twitter, man. Uh, I, I still get, like, they haven't completely rebranded, by the way. Because when I send uh, right. a DMCA takedown notice, I get emails from Twitter support, uh, not mm. X yeah. support. So there's still little things behind the scenes uh, uh, about that. But yeah, I'm, I'm there as well. 
And you can also find me at doncom.ca and at photogeekly, uh, photogeekly, photogeekweekly.com. Uh, <laughs> and now you have to go uh, register that. Yes, exactly. I need to secure that domain name. But uh, I also have a photography workshop coming up through the month of February with Princeton Photo Workshop. And there will be a link to that in the show notes. Uh, it's mostly full. Uh, there's a couple of spots left, and I'm just plugging that again before the time runs out, because while we are recording this on January 30th, the course starts on February 3rd. It's recorded, so if you miss a session, you always have access to it. Uh, they are interactive. I give assignments, and then I critique the assignments when we have our next class. I do some live demos. It's a lot of fun. Two hours a week on Saturdays. Come join us. It'll be a blast, and that's with Princeton Photo Workshop. Okay. Sounds awesome. Thank you. Um, again, picking a lot of uh, articles from Petapixel. The Hasselblad was, uh, uh, was from DP Review. But uh, here we have Taylor Swift is the new rallying cry in the fight against deep fakes. And this actually involves Twitter, uh, as we were talking about. Because if you could imagine somebody taking one of the most popular faces in the world and then applying that face to deep fake videos of uh, unsavory and unbecoming nature, uh, then you're going to have a problem. And so I believe for a period of time, uh, looking up Taylor Swift's name on Twitter, this might still be the case, yield, yielded zero results or zero image results because they were just right. trying to completely squash this. Um, so explicit images. So I, I'm having a hard time formulating my thoughts because we're <laughs> at the inception of this and it's only going to get worse. You cannot close Pandora's box. And while this is affecting celebrities right now, uh, the video AI technology is going to get better and better such that, you know, you want to put any anybody's face. Um, it could be a celebrity. It could be an ex-girlfriend. It could be, it can get into some really disturbing places. Um, you could put anybody's face on somebody else's body uh, in a pornographic sense or in a criminal sense. And there's no, there's no stopping this. I'm the father of a seven-year-old girl. And I see this problem now. And when she is, I don't know, in high school, this is only going to get worse. And I don't know how we protect the kids. I don't know how we protect anybody necessarily. Uh, you can put in legislation to ban this in, in a country, but uh, if it's still available in another country that uh, is somewhat lawless compared to uh, the Western world in terms of uh, individual sanctions, like the, the sanctity of the person. I don't know. Joseph, what, what do you think about this? Um, I'm kind of glad that this happened to Taylor Swift only because she has the lawyers and the legal team to actually make something happen about it. Right, right. Yeah, well, I'm sure it's happened to many, many people before it happened to Taylor Swift. But now that it happened to somebody whose name everybody recognizes, it's making news. And, and that's fine. You know, that's just what it takes for that to happen. And laws are now being written. But as you pointed out, just because a law exists in one country doesn't mean it's going to affect that and others. Yeah, I, I don't know how we fix it. Obviously, like you said, we can't close Pandora's box. And you can, every country in the world could have the same law. But that doesn't mean that people aren't going to still get away with it and make this kind of content. I uh, obviously don't know what the solution is, but it is definitely a problem. And it's a, a definitely a concern. And I know in your notes, you said, at what point can we no longer trust what we see on the media or social media or anywhere? 
see online. And, you know, we're already there, man. Like we are already there. You just don't know. The stuff that comes out of the AI generators now is so realistic that it is very easy to be fooled, especially if you're not critically analyzing it. You're just looking at the photo. You see a photo of person X doing Y thing. And you're just like, oh, okay, look, that's a photo of them doing that thing. Cool. There was a photo of Trump recently uh, praying in a church and everybody, I think Trump even retweeted it or, you know, shared it uh, in one way. (laughs) It was AI generated, um, as one might expect of a photograph of Trump praying in a church, not to get overly political, um, but uh, it's not just not something that man would do. Uh, But he has six fingers on each hand and AI still can't get fingers yet. Uh, they will. That, that they'll they'll fix that problem. There will be an right. update, and then fingers will be fine. Hands and feet, they'll get that sorted. Uh, and then you know, again, that, uh, that reality continues to erode. Um, you know, I, I I trust you, Joseph. You're a friend of mine. I I know you in the pre AI era. Um, but if if you were to find something. Uh, on Twitter or any news source that you believe and you share with me, I'm, I might believe you because you believe it, but that's now a third party that I cannot trust. Right. And that erosion continues and continues. And this has been happening for years with wars. People will claim, oh, this big, uh, you know, action happened, you know, this big assault or this big explosion or what have you. And, you know, that, that plane crash was from seven years prior in a different part of the world. Right. Uh, and right. people misassociate uh, valid information with the wrong context. And now you can just make up new information and have it fit whatever narrative that you want, which is going to, I think it's going to be, honestly, in the Western world with big countries, this might, might be the last fair election in the United States, uh, if you can even call it that, because in, uh, in the midterm elections, people were already using AI tech uh, to right. you know, create campaign messaging and stuff. It's already seeped in there. Yeah, I, I don't, again, obviously don't know the answer, but it is a problem and it is a problem today. And I think that anybody, anybody taking anything seriously that they see online needs to take a beat, step back and go, hold on, before I get upset about this, let me take a closer look at it. Do the, you know, I hate the term, do your research, but, you know, dig into it a little bit, see where it came from. Uh, That's one thing I really do like about Twitter, how it has the ability for the community, uh, community notes. So I've seen many things show up on there where at first glance you go, oh, that seems legit. And then you see the community notes, you're like, oh, yeah, uh, there's some context here that needs to be explained. Yeah. Um, It is funny. You made the comment about the six fingers on the hand. I saw something that was... It's so funny if it'd be funny if it wasn't true. There was somebody who was making a fake finger you can put on your hand. Oh, I saw So it looks this. like you have six fingers. Like this, if you're this looked a crime, like it was something out of an onion article, but it was right. an actual if you're gonna thing. Commit a, maybe it was. If you're going to commit a crime, put this on. And then when the pictures show up, you can say, no, that's AI generated. Look at the hands. Yeah. Hands are all messed up because you'd, you'd wear the finger. And I believe it was at one of the knuckle joints, probably the, 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 the first uh, one past your knuckle. That joint is where the finger attached and had the next two segments of your finger rising above it as a separate cloned finger so that it would, uh, it would be inadmissible in court. And yeah. uh, we're here now, folks. Uh, enjoy the ride uh, or be terrified one way or the other. It's not going to change. I might actually go on my social media platforms 
And I don't post a lot of, of family photos because I kind of see the way the world is, is going in this regard. Um, right. But I might intentionally go back and take some of them down. Uh, yeah. People don't like if, if family wants fresh photos, I'll send them directly to them. Um, adjust some privacy settings to maybe make those only visible to people that you label as close friends in various scenarios. Uh, it might be worth just going back and revisiting some of that because who knows who's going to be scraping what content for what purposes these days. It's all on the table. Yeah, no doubt. And I think it's worth pointing out too that, it, <clears throat> pardon me, if you are going to change privacy settings, you can't rely on that, right? Those bugs happen, privacy settings get accidentally automatically changed, and then your privacy settings are no longer what they were. So, you know, if you don't want it online, don't post it online. And unfortunately, you do want to send photos to friends and family. And so you text them or you use some service to send the photos. And, you know, you hope it's private, but that's about all that you can do is hope. There's not much beyond that. You know, anything can be hacked to some degree. But exactly. Yeah, I wouldn't exactly. post pictures of kids online. That's that's definitely something we don't do. We don't put pictures of the kids. Uh, it's just not. Yeah, not a good yep. idea. Uh, not a good idea. And uh, reevaluate how much content you share online. Um, because, again, as soon as you post it out there, it's not yours anymore. It's yep. uh, the world's most nefarious actors can take it and run with it. And uh, I, uh, not to be fear mongering or anything, but. Um, but it's true. Yeah. It is true. It is true. Uh, final story. This one, I always like to put something interesting on the on the backside of these articles uh, after we talk about controversial and copyright and legalese and cool camera gear and all that to find something that was just, I didn't know that happened and it's kind of neat or it's funny or what have you. In this case, this one, I, I encourage people to, to watch the, the, the clip of this uh, on Petapixel. The article is watch a chameleon erupt in stunning colors moments before she dies. And, and I love nature documentaries because they reveal a certain element of the world around me that I otherwise wouldn't have access to. There's no chameleons True. that grow in the forests around my village. Um, and, <laughs> and so uh, what, before I go any further, what did you think of this? Oh, it was incredible. It's just incredible. You know, I, so just to kind of set the stage a little bit for anyone who hasn't watched the video yet, the whole idea is this chameleon who this species of chameleon has a very short lifespan. I think it's at only five months or something and then lays her eggs, which have to stay underground for quite a long time, many, many months or years even. Um, and so for, the, for a period of time, there are none of these chameleons in existence, no, no living. They all die and then they're born Every again. single one dies. It's like a cicada brood kind of thing, right? Where it's like, they don't go 17 years, mind you, but uh, that, that type of uh, behavior, I didn't know existed uh, outside of the insect world. Yeah, me, me neither. So what's fascinating to me, other than that part of it, so it's a chameleon, chameleons change color, we all know that. Reading the part about why it changes, what's happening. And I didn't know, I never thought to look it up or ask, but I didn't know how or why they change, why it gets to be hidden, but School how they us, change. Joseph, how do they change? Um, <laughs> well, from what I'm reading here on Petapixel, it says that during death, nervous signals continue to transmit and to change the shape of the skin cells, creating the chaotic technicolor patterns that were captured. So it's the shape of the skin cells, which presumably changes how the light is refracted, which is your world, will change the color of it. And so at this point, the animal is dying, the body is just basically spazzing out, nervous signals freaking out all over the place. And so the result is the cells changing dramatically, which to someone watching it, it's stunningly beautiful. 
Yeah, in a, in a sad way. I mean, um, I, I understand death is a part of life. And, uh, you know, especially for these particular chameleons, they, this is just their purpose. Um, and to watch it, to just sit there. And it's time lapse, so it's, it is sped up. And you can tell that there's a couple of you know, bugs and things that move around that you can uh, tell have been sped up. But it was kind of somber, beautiful, and just gives me a different look on, on the way that certain life in our world can can behave how it's evolved and adapted and uh planned obsolescence you know i i don't know <laughs> i don't know why they they all die uh I, I think though that it might go back to that cicada uh, methodology where if you have a lot of activity all at once and then nothing for a period of time predators cannot then be adapted to use you as food on a reliable basis Ooh, that might be part of it that makes sense I don't know. I'm I'm not a, a biologist, but anyhow, um, check out the Pretty video. Sick. It is pretty cool to see. Definitely worth. Okay, watching. we are going into our final segment, the picks of the week on this episode of Photo Geek Weekly. Which again, you can check out all the links to the sh- uh, uh, to the stories we talked about and the picks at photogeekweekly.com. Um, I'm going to go first, and mine is is a new little tool from a company I love called platypod uh and this is their platypod grip which you know it might not seem like a uh a unique type of tool it's a smartphone holder but larry tiefenbrunn at platypod always over engineers everything and yes of course it's size adjustable to you know just the fattest phones and the skinniest ones and so on um and there is one tightening and loosening mechanism that will help control uh, how things are tight in place. And it works really well, very, very solid. But the thing that I love the most about this is hard points. Number one, it has a three-eighths thread on the bottom to uh, function on a tripod, but it also has two quarter 20 threads. It also has two quarter 20 threads on the back of the phone mount as well. So you can stick all sorts of gadgets and accessories on this when you're doing phone work. Um, I've used that to attach gooseneck arms and attach lights to them and have that self-contained within this little device itself. It's solid. It works really well. And, um, you know, in it's showing me in my current currency. It's 7142 Leva. Nobody listening to this, I don't think, is in Bulgaria and cares about what it is in Bulgarian currency. So, Joseph, why don't you tell me what it costs in U.S. dollars? Oh, well, I can tell you in euros. It's 3651. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. <so. laughs> yes, of course. You're, you're in Europe now. Um, but it... <laughs> It is, uh, it's probably more expensive than one would have thought to have wanted to spend on a phone holder. But as far as photography gear goes, especially with the tripod mounts on the bottom and just its rock solid reliability, um, this is a piece of kit that I'm always going to be taking with me. It's going to be going, like I've got a small little camera bag that's just going to have the tiniest accessories in it. I might not even take the big camera with it, but just uh, lenses to adapt to my phone. And, uh, and this, this little, little gadget is going to make its presence known. So check that out. I think that they are, it, it, I just read it right now, that new grips have just come in and they'll be, coming, they'll be shipping out on Monday. And so that, um, that is a new announcement from Platypod. Check it out. It is worth your attention. Now, uh, why don't you close us out with, uh, with your pick of the week, Joseph? Well, you know, I was going to cheat and just go with the macro lens because that's obviously uh, awesome. And everyone should have one who, owns, uh, who shoots 
Bluemix L mount. But now, now that you've shown off this little platypod grip, I'm going to go that direction for my actual pick of the week, and I'll get the link to you after the show. But it is a also an iPhone stand. It's called the Kenu, K-E-N-U. And this is a very flat little thing that will fit into your pocket or fit into your bag or fit anywhere that full opens up kind of Z-shaped and magnetically mounts to your phone. And you can use it as a stand. You can use it to wrap around the uh, bicycle handle pole. Um, I've wrapped around C-stands just to mount the phone somewhere. It's magnetic on multiple sides, so you can mount it to basically anything metal. It's just this really versatile little stand that is very well engineered, and I've found it to be incredibly useful. It's just to- that looks like it can, yeah, it can hold up your phone for you know, sitting at a cafe or um, exactly. using your phone yeah, you're as a cafe, recipe. You want to you want to watch something? Great, put it on there. You are. Uh, I've used it when I was running wires on my rack and I needed to phone up to keep track of things. And so I need someone to put the phone. Oh, grab this and boom, it magnetically mounted to the, to the rack. I've used it for doing now Instagram Now it magnetically story. mounts via the Apple MagSafe tech, right? Correct. It, and it's got its own magnets in it. So it is very strong to the MagSafe on your phone. And it even comes with a little magnetic ring if your phone is, does not have MagSafe that you can slip behind between a case and the phone. So it makes right. it magnetic. But uh, it's just, it's just this brilliantly designed little stand. There's, dozen different ways to use it and i think it's fabulous so what's the cost go. on that do you remember i don't um i want to <laughs> say like 20 bucks or something but it's probably not it'll be cheap. in the show notes <laughs> it'll be in the show notes they sent it to me and then it t- to do a thing on before they launched and then they forgot to send me the link it's so i never did something with it other than talk about it on the occasional show like this and it's worth it so i will i will send you the info it's lovely all right well these these little gadgets make our lives happy i think they um, do I'm, you know, it's, it's, it's weird. I feel like a bit of a hoarder because I have so many <laughs> of these little gadgets and, uh, right. but, but I use them all and it's, I don't know. That's just the life of a photographer these days, I think, especially with uh, Kickstarter and crowdfunding and all of these different projects on the go. Uh, I end up buying stuff that I never would, uh, use once. And, uh, that was my happy dance. And then it sits in the closet and, I don't touch it again. Um, <laughs> thankfully, these phone accessory things are not that. They are so indispensable and get them wherever you can find them. Okay, Photo Joseph, thank you for being on the show. Um, and thank you to everybody for listening. I'm going to have to have you back on more often now that we're like almost neighbors again, right? Yeah, absolutely. One of these days we should do the show together in person in the same space. Whoa, that you've blown my mind, man. Uh, I don't know if there's any direct flights to, to, to your city from mine, but I'm sure we could work something Probably out. Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> right, it's good to see you in the road trip, up. right? Uh, there's there always go. ways to, to make it happen. Good to see you as well, uh, my friend. And uh, to everybody listening, thanks for listening. It's time to get out and shoot. <laughs>